When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today's Thursday, October 14th, 2021. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. I want to mention again that we're hiring an ad sales manager. Put a link in the show notes. You can go to bookriot.com slash join dash us. The slash is punctuation, and so is the dash. And the join is the word join. There is no punctuation for join. That would be useful punctuation, actually. Join. <laughs> fascinating radio we're doing a theater of the mind <laughs> theater of the mind is radio uh and go check that out also if you're still interested in our fall book draft you can still download it and vote it's pay what you will downloadable mp3 without any drm you could do what you want with it um i guess except pawn it off as your own it's still under copyright but we're not charging for it uh, and you can vote. The votes are st- they're still trickling in a little bit. And we're also now, what's interesting is we're in the season where the books we've drafted are coming out. Let me just say, Rebecca, mm-hmm. boy, do I like books. I'm having a really <sighs> I like books fall. There's so, I me mean, too. I think you're having this a little bit too. You you go first and we can do a little bit of this. I am I am also having a boy I really like books fall. I read the new Lauren Groff oh. on my trip last week. And like, I was I was in Switzerland. I was in like pastoral places. I was reading. I was in like eighth century churches and I was reading about a nun in the 12th century. Yes. And it was just like, it was the perfect setting. The book was so good. Um, yes, I'm surprised so by how, good. and you had told me that you were surprised by how much you loved it. I was super surprised. It was great. I feel like Groff went to some new places and it made yes. me stoked to, to like, I felt like I knew what Lauren Groff was about. And now mm. I'm like, oh, all right. Lauren Groff still has bigger. Some... The world's the bigger. Yeah. The Groffiverse is bigger now. The yes, Groffiverse is bigger. Yeah. There, I'm, it makes me really curious and excited for whatever she'll do next. I read the Stanley Tucci memoir on a flight. I it listened was, to it. Yeah. It was like exactly what I wanted a Stanley mm. Tucci memoir to be. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm having... I'm having that. We just came off Colson Whitehead. I have the new I Jonathan know. Franzen. Like, I'm. It's it's a good time to be. I a know. Book person. I know. I Jen Northington and I are are doing a podcast about the Foundation adaptation on Apple Plus, and also I've reread the book, and I was like, Foundation's amazing. This adaptation is a hot mess, but it's so interesting to talk about. I'm in the middle of Dune. Hot take. Dune is effing great. Like, I, <laughs> everything's coming up, Jeff, in the world of books and reading right now. Apollo Murders came out yesterday. Uh, Or on Tuesday, which is going to be probably my next after Crossroads. Um, I I don't mind saying that the Apollo Murderers is garnering me a fair number of votes, I think. People explicitly mention the Apollo Murderers, which which is the thing. The thing that is the turd in the punch mole of those votes is it's not that you didn't pick it. It's just that you know you could pick it. So it's not really a victory of skill. (laughs) You know, I think the most interesting thing to me about all three times that we've done those drafts is that I think we go into it thinking this is going to be, people are going to vote based on the best overall basket. No, that's a great and, point. It's not and, that. And, like, and that's the thing we set out to do is make mm-hmm. the best overall basket. But the votes very often indicate like, well, these were all pretty good, but I went with you because you picked this specific title. And that's it was right. like this one title that put me over the edge, which is just going to inform my strategy, I think, for future Draft competitions. Draft for the stands is what you're saying. Yeah. Uh-huh. Find the stands book. And get the, <laughs> yeah. the other one, the other bifurcation happening is the Orlean versus Roach, which we we said at the time. Mm-hmm. Like people were saying, and maybe it's because we talked about that divide that people are then coming back to say, yeah, I'm an, I'm an Orleanian or I'm a Roachian. Um, <laughs> and that's interesting to talk about too. But we're still taking votes. It's going to be available through Thanksgiving and we're going to set votes through December 1st. So you have time to listen to it after Thanksgiving and we will do a post-mortem um, on our draft to reveal the winner. Also do a little bit of a meta discourse about bonus content and how this yeah, particular yeah, yeah. experiment with uh, worked, uh, which is uh, pretty interesting as well. Like I said, I don't know what's going to come out probably in a week or so. The uh, podcast Northington and I are doing about foundation, which I, I've got a bunch of notes. I'm coming in super hot for that. So I'm looking forward to that. 
I'm excited for that. Before we go into more stuff, I also want to announce, I don't think you and Danica got to it last week. Mm. I haven't had a chance to listen um, to that show, but we've got Book Riot swag out in the universe for the month of October. Um, It was our 10th birthday on October 3rd and for just this month only we've got, um, it's the first swag that's ever been out in the world with our updated logo that came out last year. We're running um, a campaign on Bonfire. Um, So you can go to bonfire.com and search for Book Riot or we'll have a link in the show notes. There are some great uh, sweatshirts and hoodies and long sleeve shirts, a couple short sleeve t-shirts. If you, like me, are a person who lives somewhere that you can wear short sleeves year round. Um, I am now about to be the happy new owner of one of like a beautiful golden sweatshirt with the book riot logo in black and just ready for that fall put my fall colors on man it's Um, time if you're if you want to rep out for book riot you can check out the bonfire link in the show notes and place your order by october 31st all right let's do a quick break for a sponsor okay we're gonna do book riot 10 we didn't do it last time we ran out of time um and then I nipped it in the bud because I, th- I knew it was going to take some time. It'll be our main topic. Today, I actually, last night was writing, um, as part of Book Ride Insiders, if you subscribe, you get a twice a month behind the scenes newsletter. And I'm up for October. So mm-hmm. my first missive, uh, and, and, and Jen Northington also does the assignments for that, picked me because it's the 10 year. I thought I might have something to say. I was like, oh, great pressure. <laughs> and so what you I did. something to say? What I did was celebrating the failures. It's something that we kind of did while we were in our company Slack. I, I was like, you know, let's let's pour one out for all the th- all the things that Book Riot no longer is um, and does. And I think that's one thing that's that's an interesting way of looking at how our company has changed, what we do have changed, and then how the wider world of digital media and the book world and how all those things are sort of part of the stew that makes our company what it is. I mean, in terms. We can take that second, maybe, because the things that are most interesting are what is what is important to us now, both in terms of topic, content, distribution, business, whatever, that weren't important to us at the beginning or in the early days. The answer is the biggest answer is really newsletters and emails. I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of the business distribution, um, we have millions of subscribers to a whole bunch of different lists. And we sell a lot of advertising against them. Advertisers continue to like newsletters for targeting, metrics, everything else like that. I think getting the right content to the right person at the right time is not language we would have used at the beginning because what we had is a blog and social media. Mm -hmm. But over time, we've developed different understandings of how people like to read their stuff or listen to their thing or watch their stuff. And that can vary by on platform, based on content, based on person, based on the the maker or creator, and based on the the business plan behind it. So that newsletters for sure, but the diversity of places you can consume a book riot thing and what you do or do not pay for it or how you do or do not see it, read it, or hear it, that's been the name of the game. The Cambrian explosion of ways <laughs> to encounter book riot content is my number one overall draft pick for boy, this is something you'd be surprised by in October oh. twenty eleven. Yeah, I agree. Um, That and just the sheer, the diversity of ways that anybody in media is keeping in touch with their audience now. And just the simple fact that we don't think about just readers. We're talking about readers and podcast listeners and video viewers. Yes, (laughs) right. um, That there are people eager to connect in so many ways around whatever the subject that they're interested in is and that it, that books continue to be so important to so many people i i think you know book riot started out of the belief that that was just true and would be enduringly true and had been enduringly true for a long time but it's a thing that when i talk to people like back in the, well when i used to talk to people when i used to go to parties mm. um, you know and they'd be like oh well you know the kids don't read books or like what's happening with books and be like well millions of people come to this website every month and read things about books or come looking for a list of recommendations or listen to a podcast about books or subscribe to a newsletter or 12 about books like books are alive and well readers are alive and well and that um with the diversity of i think in the broader media landscape there's that conversation about all the competition for attention and that is certainly true but the competition for attention doesn't seem to be harming the rate at which people read and care about books um and that's been really heartening over the last 10 years i think you that was i'll bridge off that 
to talk about some of the things that also would have surprised us because some of the questions and conversations we've had over time have strengthened and waned in importance and interest and really level of resolution because Mm -hmm. where are we in the world of books and reading is a really interesting question. I felt like when we started this show, particularly not just BookRite itself, there was a lot more, a lot more tumult in in the water, you know, whether it's Amazon's versus Indies versus Barnes and Noble versus, you know, diversity in publishing and reading and uh, business models and independent bookstores. Where right now, I feel like kind of weirdly, we're on the other side of a lot of those. Not to say yeah. there are, there's work to be done, but um, I think it was Danica. Danica put in our company Slack something from the old days that one of us had written. I can't remember saying how the Times list of the most influential authors was all white, right? Mm -hmm. This was like in 2012. Still problems with inclusion, no doubt about it. But that kind of a list from that kind of a publication would not happen now. It just just would not happen. It just, that, that, that simplistic level of that conversation is over. A lot of this stuff about how publishing doesn't care, is blind to questions of equity and inclusion, not fixed, a lot of work to do. Probably most of the structural things are there, but no longer can it be said that publishing doesn't do anything because we've seen, we've just seen things change. So we're at a different place of what's next, I think is a very fascinating question there. The tone of that conversation has really changed a lot in in the last 10 years. You know, that when, when Book Riot first started talking about diversity and inclusivity in publishing and sort of calling out the industry. We were certainly not the first or the only people or publication to be doing it. So I'm not I'm not giving us credit for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we did first start really having that be part of our discourse, which was a few years before publishing was on board with it, I would sit in meetings like at BEA or at publishers offices for sales. And there would be some hesitation because at the time, Book Riot pushing for things like that was we were perceived as like we were pretty new on the scene. And yeah. publishing is sort of inherently skeptical of things that are new on the scene because a lot of publishing is really old. Um, so at the time, we were new on the scene and we were calling out stuff. Yeah, we were loudmouths. We were calling out stuff that had been going on for a long time. We were being vocally critical of things. And it was that folks were hesitant to like, well, but like, what if Book Riot gets mad at me? Or like, <laughs> I, I don't know, do we feel comfortable? Like, because you guys are loudmouths about things sometimes. And now the industry has moved enough, not only that like, to the point where it's not a barrier to work with. It's not a barrier to our business that we are loudmouths about mm. things, but it's an asset um, within the industry. And seeing that transition or having, I've experienced, you know, the, a real shift in saying things to um, to publishers about, you know, like we require our content to include yeah. sort of baseline um, ratios of coverage of books that are by people who aren't cis men and people who are not white people and that that's not only accepted but often publishers are really excited to hear about that and um, we've had publishers say oh yeah we're applying some of those same things to our content as well um, that's that is really heartening and encouraging and that's for me that's one of the things that makes it worth it um, and not just worth it but it makes it and emotionally manageable to continue mm-hmm. doing that kind of work is like it's slow but over the last 10 years these shifts have occurred and being able to see them and remember what those initial conversations were like is really helpful. Yeah, I think I think the thing that's, again, it can, it can be the kind of statement that feels like complacency, and I don't mean that at all, but we have seen the boat start to turn, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean it's turned, but what it means is the boat is turnable. And yeah. I think that was an open question, right? That was yeah, really an open was. question it, for a long time. It, it's like, yeah, is this, could this the, ever get better? the resistance to it and you know and i understand that resistance i think it's just the corporate industrial version of the personal resistance and like defensiveness that many of us feel when we're called out on something the first couple of times or before you can get past your personal defensiveness to look at what the system is and i'm glad that there has been receptivity to it and that that as you're saying i'm glad we now know that the boat can be turned and i think the other big shift in the industry where the boat has turned is around attention and like validation of genre and that coverage of genre like it was 
disruptive. And I hate to use that word, but it was disruptive to how book coverage was done when we launched and we were like, whatever kinds of books you like, we've got something for you and we want you to be here. And if you love Twilight, which at the time was really popular, we're not going to bash you for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, that's cool. You want to read romance? Come on down. Um, And now 10 years later, and I think that Book Riot was part of this shift. Um, the New York Times has a romance section and you know, all kinds yeah. of literary publications, even That's though right. their number of writers has been contracting and the number of like column inches that you get in an actual newspaper to devote to book coverage has shrunk. The diversity of titles that they feature and the diversity of genres that they feature and that it's not just like ivory tower coverage for literary fiction readers anymore because you can't make your business work that mm-hmm. way is really important. Um, kind of along the same lines, the format wars are over, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't at all the case in the earlier days. I mean, really, when we started, we I didn't listen to too many audiobooks. The great question was, you know, e-books, are they real books? Like, they're going to destroy the industry and blah, blah, blah. Hasn't turned out to be the case. There's a lot of interesting uses for e-books, but also people like print. Then audiobooks, are they really listening? Audiobooks turned out to be the real new cash cow, right? That really yep. a- additive to the market in a way that e-books was a little more... I'm not sure if cannibalizing the right way, but you're making a decision. I, I may this. Here's a true thing about me: I will decide between print and ebook. If it's something I'm going to listen to on audio, I'm mm-hmm. not like should I do that on audio or print? Like an audio, Same. almost like it's different. It's like a mm-hmm. different cultural. It's a different experience for me that they don't really compete with each other. Um, but whether or not that counts as reading or not, and what would be the future of print and audio and e? I think for now is largely settled. Print continues to sell. Ebooks continue to sell. Audiobooks continue to sell. Rebecca, no losers. Interesting. No losers. New, no losers. Now, what kinds of books? What kinds of authors? Like, we've been decrying the death of the midlist since like 1972, and that, that <laughs> continues apace. On the other hand, in the absence of midlist, you have a lot more genre, self published, small, fantasy, crossover, YA, middle gray reading of all kinds, of all stripes that gets coverage in different kinds of ways. Um, but you also get, you know, a, a kinds of diversity of voices and genre experiences in the mainstream that you didn't have 10 years ago, certainly not 20 years ago, not that, that, that I was aware of. And you see it in terms of how things are marketed and how the cross, there's like genreless titles that could be YA, could be fantasy, could be adult, could be commercial. Depends mm-hmm. on... Um, what the the marketing um, department of that particular books wants to do. Um, But, you know, I didn't realize this till the other day, till I realized it was true. I'm always unhappy with the format of book I'm consuming in a given time. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) This sounds like an existential problem. (laughs) Well, none of them do everything well, right? None of them do. Because audio you can do when you can't do eye reading, Right, you you're mm-hmm. washing the dishes, you're doing, you're you're driving the car, whatever else you do that you 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 can't or otherwise is not amenable to just reading with your eyes. Which means a couple of things. One is note taking in audiobooks is is very hard. Going back and finding the place to go read it to your family or friend or some passage you thought was cool or fact, hard to do, hard to mark. It's just you're just sort of letting the stream wash over you, which is great. And I wouldn't have read Stanley Tucci's book probably if it wasn't an audiobook version. I just wouldn't have picked it over something else I would have picked in print. So there's the downsides of that. Print, it's great, except you have to buy it. You have to go get it. It's heavy. You can't, unless you're reading it with a lamp at night, you know, it's it's not, it just has its own limitations. And then ebooks, you can't annotate. And you don't get to keep and put on your bookshelf. And they're also hard to reference. But they're portable. So they all have their compromise. I think that's the thing we didn't realize is the reason none of them can win is because none of them ticks all the boxes. It's like there's no one to-do list app right. that everyone uses because everyone yeah. uses it a little bit differently. It's that's a I think that's a great point and a great way to summarize it, that there is no like one format to rule mm-hmm. them all. And we didn't I don't think we realized that when it was like, oh God, ebooks are coming for us, what's going to happen? And right. it's I know that there are folks who still read hardcover specifically because they love the smell of a fresh new book and they'll never read an ebook and that's their reasoning. And that's fine. I'm happy for them. Um, My 
decision making is more similar to yours and what I'm deciding to read. Like we both read a lot of business and like, you know, management types of things. I would normally be inclined if it's something that I'm just sort of learning about to listen on audio Mm -hmm. to something like that. But I want to be able to take notes or like refer back to interesting or, you know, useful things in these. So I like I've been on a journey of do I want to read these in print and like underline stuff that I can flip back to or I'm currently reading one that I could only get in ebook. So like that thing that happened this morning is that I was highlighting stuff in my iPad and I was like, how am I going to keep track of that? This? You can, because <laughs> like, you can, Rebecca, right, that's the right, right question. And it was like, okay, so am I then going to come back at the end of the book and uh-huh. pull up the, the things that I highlighted and are those going like in a notes app on my computer are they going in a journal and honestly jeff i was gonna write them down with papyrus and quote pens like (laughs) isaac newton i was i was like i hadn't had all my coffee yet i had a whole existential crisis about it it it, it, like looped into like what if i find the one perfect notebook and then all my problems will be solved so i think right right? i mean you know you know I what if I got an MFA? What if I took a screenwriting course? <laughs> well, now I can report that the wire cutter does analyze notebooks. <laughs> so you're going to write a commonplace book. You're re- reinventing <laughs> yeah. commonplace books from am, the 15th century. I am yeah. reinventing commonplace books for business and management highlights is the place that I am in life right now. And how I feel about that, I guess, is for my therapist. <laughs> I, do you know, I, I think there might be a way, and I haven't gone full like doc brown on this like of the of the gutenberg the gutenberg or the the, the rube gold the gutenberg machine that's a freudian <laughs> malapropism show title the rube goldberg machine he uses to uh, feed einstein to get my kindle highlights into a goodreads account and then i can browse all my quotes that i've highlighted i think that's something you can set up oh but you know but then you're but then you're but then, then you're, you have to then be you're in goodreads then you're in. right yes. then you have then to be in. in goodreads like i yeah. i'm gonna try this handwritten commonplace book situation and see how it goes. And then I think I might just end up in our longtime favorite, the bear app in the long run, putting my notes in there and then hashtagging them with stuff. (laughs) But I do the same thing. Timeline. It all comes all these up. These, these will all be abandoned and that's fine. But but the point is on the other hand, if you get it set up, right, you could theoretically look at your database of quotes as opposed to my well, dark eared and annotated copy of Seneca that's right. on my, that's on right. my that's, shelf that is just sort of self-contained and siloed. Yeah. And you can't do any of those things with an audiobook, which None I think my audiobook listening does tend to, it tends to be nonfiction. It tends to be memoirs and like stuff that will be fun and entertaining, but that I'm probably not going to need to refer back to. And yeah. hardcover yeah. is for, I want this, I will probably keep this book long term and or I need to make handwritten notes in it because it's Harlem Shuffle and we're going to talk about it on the show mm-hmm. or That's or right. something like that. But those that every customer who buys books is making those kinds of format decisions and they're applying some personal calculus about what they're trying to get from that specific book into okay, which format then should I consume this book in is not a thing that retailers or publishers anticipated. Ebooks were so scary because they thought that they were, publishers feared that the ebook experience and the ease of technology was just going to be so overwhelmingly compelling that Mm. print was going to be completely decimated by it. And that has not been the case. And if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. It makes sense. I can read these iWords mm-hmm. faster and cheaper, and you know, it, it looks like it's well, disruption from below in the cla- the classic Clayton Christensen kind of way. But I don't. And again, I know there are sort of monoculture readers out there that they do one thing or mostly one thing, and so they stick with their mm-hmm. their Kindle reader or their prints or whatever. I think those kinds of people probably then read for mostly the same reason most of the time. I think what we're yes. saying is. That if you read for different things at different times, you're going to choose different formats to serve them. And mm-hmm. if you are a, I don't, I don't, an omnivore, or you read for a bunch of different reasons, probably you're going to lend yourself to multiple formats because, in a given moment, the compromises that format affords you will better serve your needs than others. Though it won't serve them all, because um, yep. right now, for example. I had this thing. I'll have to remember next week because I did a productivity book in print so I could mark it and I dog-eared it. Like, you know, don't at me, whatever. It's still the most <laughs> elegant and available way. You paid if for you it. Have... You can do what you want. That's right. It's it's my thing to ruin people. Um, about Danielle Steele's writing process that was in 4,000 Weeks, her productivity book. Let me just say that Danielle Steele, a machine oh, and pathological God. about writing. <laughs> uh, and I dog-eared it, so it's there. But 
It's in a box because we're getting new bookshelves put in and I can't access it. So I, I accurately and timely marked it and it's completely <laughs> undiscoverable to me. So congratulations to me. So what you needed was my digital commonplace book that you could have put your notes into. I, I, I guess, I, I guess that's what I, you know, but I, I'm going to walk around like an animal with a notebook <laughs> that I then whip out to write down crap. Yeah, that's the idea. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to go great. It's going to go wonderfully. I'm sure that's going to happen. So that that's another one that's happened there. Um, the, the rise and fall of social media as a referral engine for traffic mm-hmm. to URL-based websites. Now, social media, a giant thing. Don't, don't mishear me. But in terms of getting someone to look at your list of your 10 favorite notebooks you've abandoned, um, social media doesn't really do it that mm-hmm. much anymore. There's SEO and there's referrals and people that visit your site. But in our early days, before the great algorithm apocalypse, you could get a multiplier of your followers to see any given piece of content you put on Facebook. Our first one was Twitter and then Facebook and then you know Tumblr and some other places. Those places still are places where people go to consume content, but that's not the way of the world. And I think that the rise of subscription-based Mm-hmm. is very interesting. It's something we have in Book Riot Insiders, we have in TBR, but in terms of consuming the site and having a paywall, that's not something we do in Substack. I think that's good on the whole for the media ecosystem as there's multiple businesses, mo- business models available. So you do not necessarily have to be BuzzFeed um, or Facebook or Google AdWords or one of these giant, giant, giant things to get money to support your sites. Because the other thing we've seen happen in our lifetime as Book Riot is the the body count of digital media companies that came and go, and especially of book-related ones or book-related sections, even in digital media, not many survivors left. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, the hot thing seems to be book subscription services. This comes and goes. For a while, it was we tried to do Scribd and Oyster, subscription-based things, Kindle Unlimited. Um, Before that, it was like the book app. Remember things like Small Demons and some of those things? Like, we're going to supplement your reading life with some weird-ass app that does something you're kind of (laughs) going to be interested in once. Um, and it's going to be a huge thing. We just didn't know. But like what the digital supplements direct to consumer market was going to look mm-hmm. like continues to evolve a pace, I would say. I'm not sure we know. I, how many of these book subscription experiences are going to be around in five years is a source of great fascination to me. We actually have something on the docket we may or may not get to today about other kinds of book clubs, but the literatis, the, you know, there's so, one more page, the, the owl crates. I can't even think of them all um, right now. There's just so many of D to C ways of getting books into readers' hands that they pay for. Print books, I should say, yeah, I is interesting. We're, we're in the white-hot center of that right now, it feels we like. Is, we are. We're in the white-hot center of it. And just listening to you list off all of those and then all of the places that we've been, sort of, I think, brings us back to the graveyard of past. And graveyard yes. just in these things have outlived their prime, not that we that they were bad. Um, but graveyard of like past projects. And I think the... One of the things I said to our folks about the 10th anniversary when we were talking about it on Slack was like, I have really learned how many bad ideas it takes to a go- to get to a good one and yes. how iterative and constantly evolving you have to be yeah. um, to run a business like this and have it be successful. So uh, having done a lot of our product stuff, my only assumption really is that the thing we're doing now is not the thing we're going to be doing <laughs> in right. five years. You know, like the we, we went through like four or five iterations of book subscription somethings before we landed at developing TBR, which is functionally Stitch Fix for books. And I assume that that's going to change shape Mm-hmm. over the next several years it might go away at some point most of the things go away at some point or they evolve into something else and a lot of the things that we're doing right now are iterations on something that we did five mm-hmm. years ago or they're like the fourth iteration of a thing we did five years ago and we just keep like taking the best piece of the thing and pushing it forward and leaving behind the pieces that are as my yoga friends would say leaving behind the pieces that no longer serve us um mm. <laughs> but that's I think that's just true for media right. and technology right now but where we we find ourselves in a white hot center of a thing every couple of years and it's a different thing every couple of years and yep. that sort of creative flexibility and 
learning to assume that the thing that works now is not the thing that's going to work forever. And when it stops working, it's not that like we have failed or the idea was bad, but that the market shifts and the technology shifts and what people are open to because of all of those things and what they make possible or what they take away shifts and changes and just staying open to that, I think is like that's the thing that I think about of having really internalized over the first decade of this. And I think it will be the most useful thing going into the second decade. The thing you want to succeed probably won't. And the thing you right. didn't think would be a thing becomes a huge, oh, important part oh of what god. you I do. Mean, remember when we were like, oh, my God, we have to have an email newsletter. <laughs> I had to advocate for it because it was seen as so uncool that to, to merely broach the idea meant that you were basically like admitting your own decrepitude to suggest an email might be an it's answer like, to some questions that you have. So unsexy. And yet, and yet um, maybe actually and yet. that's a good lesson is like that it's often the unsexy things that get the, that are the most effective and get the most work done in the long term. I think that's an interesting segue to like what the present and future looks like in, mm. in our company and the rest. But let's do another sponsor break before we get into that. Even as much as I decry the or, or not really decry i just note the the descendency of social media referrals as a source of attention to text based content at the same time there's durability in the url and text people still read the internet they just find it in ways that are a little bit different than they did 5 years ago 10 years ago certainly 15 years ago when you were looking at like a, a yahoo directory or something like that <laughs> um but people find it in different ways they get referrals in different ways, and different kind of content is more or less interesting. Thinking of the URL as something that answers people's questions is an interesting way um, to mm-hmm. think about, especially as SEO becomes. People are asking questions of Google to which you can supply the answer, and they will find you. Sometimes they find you multiple times for the same question as I look at Google Analytics or something like that. Sometimes they're like, hey, book rides a thing. I'll bookmark that or sign up for their newsletter or just that was cool and you know, um, someone will link to you. And that's a good way of sort of being on the reference shelf of the internet's questions about books is a useful way to stay useful um, to people. I think one thing that's true about the book world, that's true of a lot of content areas, but I think it's especially true of book worlds. Frankly, it's one of the reasons that Bezos got Amazon into it is there's so many titles all over the place that in the early days, Book Riot was a blog of web-based content and you would come to Book Riot or get referred to there and you would read and look at the Book Riot stuff. As we've evolved... We've segmented and fragmented and kept things around. So as a proportion of our readership, I think there are fewer and fewer people out there that as a percentage of our total audience that think of themselves as a Book Riot reader, that they Mm -hmm. go to the site, but they might subscribe to an email, listen to a podcast, get TBR, come through a different way or something else like that. So it's kind of a, a confederation of various things because books are, it's like, no one likes all books. There's no, just no one that walks into books like they're like I'm going to look at every single book here, um, even more even more so than I think like a food website, which is if we want to look at our notches on our belt of failure, there's one mm-hmm. we can talk about there. Whereas like if you're interested in food, it's pretty much not true that you're like I'm only interested in desserts only and always <laughs> already right. I mean you're Although interested good on in a lot you. of different things. Uh, congratulations to you and um, congratulations to your dentist. Um, but I think that that's something we've learned as well as we want to ser- get the right content to the right person the right place. We need to like package it in a way that they know what they're getting and can rely on it and they can come to it consistently and open the email listen to the podcast or else yeah. do something like that. So Book Riot is more of a riot now. In a way, in terms of a, if a, you know, a, a nucleus of activity around a center, but there may not be as much of a center there as we yeah, would have thought at I the beginning. That's true. It feels much more like, I don't know, a town with a bunch of small communities inside yeah, it yeah. than it used to, where it just felt like one big community. And I think some of that is about size and some of it is about the sheer volume and specificity of information that you can find on the internet and that folks used to want when we started folks would want to see just like a list of the 10 best books and for it to be diverse in its genre inclusions Mm -hmm. diverse in the kinds of authors that it featured that's what we did that's what we still do but they now also want to be to be able to dial in like the 10 best sci-fi fantasy books about this specific 
thing. And just the size of the internet makes it possible to get that specific in your request. And so it's been interesting to me to watch how first it was about expansion and making the one room we had bigger. And now that room exists, but there are pockets inside it. I'm mixing all my metaphors. Mm -hmm. And with and and each of those pockets becomes so specific or um, we for a long time in our coverage stayed away from doing lists of like specifically a list about queer writers or specifically a list about black writers because we didn't want to run any risk of like siloing away those books or having anyone think that like the only place we're going to cover these books is in a list all for themselves and now that diverse coverage is more common across the industry and it's such an innate part of how book riot functions i think folks who do read book riot know you're going to get books by people of color everywhere but that means also now there are folks who are specifically looking for books by people of color Mm -hmm. and we can launch a newsletter for those people that gives them that or we have a reading the rainbow which is specifically about queer and lgbtq titles and that that can be done because those titles are now integrated into coverage widely across the literary internet. And that's not a silo. It's a service to -hmm. create that specific coverage for folks who are looking for those specific things and don't want to have to sort through everything like that sort of contraction back into how I feel like I've said the word specific 400 times now, but like into how specific and idiosyncratic requests can become and that you can serve those um, has been really surprising and interesting to me. I think it makes sense. I mean, there is no mainstream mm-hmm. book culture. There, there just isn't. Right. And, and, and the way we think about mainstream culture, even in something like movies or TV, there is no squid game of books. There is no No Time to Die coming out this week of books. Even something that's a huge seller in a given week, uh, the, 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 the Rooney we were talking about, I think mm-hmm. it was with, um, were you on that show or was that Amanda? I can't remember when I was I talking think that about was Amanda. how. Amanda, where, you know, in the UK, the Rooney sold 46,000 copies his first week, which was good and certainly a moment for UK and it sold 40,000 copies here, but we have one fifth the population, certain kind of reader. That's a big deal to them. But on that same week, there's a different genre, a different reading community. There's a big deal to them. There is no, there is no, no time to die. Um, there is no stranger Things season four, mm-hmm. um, that come out. So it's a natural outgrowth of that. And, you know, there's this old saying in business and other things, frankly, in military history, whatever, but like you, you concentrate to grow and you diversify to protect, and I think when we were really trying to grow and make a name for ourselves, a thing that people could pay attention to, and there was interesting stuff going on here, we really like invested in the book right idea, like this is a thing and this is an attitude and this is a way of seeing the world. But as we've grown and as we've gotten more mature and we've understood what you know the role we play in the larger ecosystem, we've diversified um, into different kinds of content models. I think, you know, we continue to do podcasts. We've done this one, frankly, in a a fairly similar format for a long time. You know, we're coming up next summer. um, We're going to hit 500 episodes around that (laughs) time. And this format hasn't changed that much, but you've heard us experiment over time. I Mm -hmm. think podcasting has been my favorite development uh, uh, since, since we started the, this, the, the, um, the site, you all who have listened to me have heard me fail at other kinds of podcasts <laughs> over time and try stuff. And and weirdly, they were successes in their, own, in their own way. And I don't want to toot my own horn except to say that even something that looks like success, you can learn something, but you ultimately don't want to continue, for example. Reading Lives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I like that show. Yeah, I think I was particularly well-suited to host that show and get interviewees. It was at one point one of Entertainment Weekly's 25 best podcasts of the year, which is kind of a weird thing to say. And it was like in a print. I still have the print magazine on my shelf over here. But it's a specific audience. You got to book things. And I was at a transition time in my life where going out and booking audience and doing the kind of prep work, frankly, I did for that show. So I didn't sound like an idiot when Celeste Ang or Andy Weir showed up to talk to me about their books and their reading life was too much. Should I have, you know, in a different world that may be still going, in a different world, I've never done it. Annotated. We love that show. And I said in the email newsletter, mm-hmm. there's one thing I've had to stop doing that I regret the most. It's probably that. But it took a lot of work. We learned something from it. And podcast audiences are hard to grow. Yeah. They're, they're easy, easy. Retention isn't as much of a problem. But getting them in the door in the first place at scale, especially for an edited show, is very difficult. And so, you know, you might see over the coming years, you've heard programmatic podcast ads in this and some of our general purpose shows, the Gumroad experiment. You might see things in the future where we're trying to figure out business models around podcasting. 
because it's a great audience, it's a great format, but scale can be tough unless you're Spotify or The Ringer or Slate or The New York Times or one of the big, 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 true, well, a true crime podcast of almost any stride as evidenced by the only murders in the building, which Michelle and I were delightfully oh, enjoying. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. We can talk about that some other time. So that's, I think that's at the present and future um, is how to use podcasts well. Um, I think it's still an open question. We haven't invested a lot in trying to grow these shows um, for advertising reasons that are a little bit boring, but our bread and butter advertiser are publishers and podcast advertising not their favorite for reasons I think that are very understandable. You know oh, about totally. Simply Safe or Stamps.com or what MailChimp or Squarespace because they want you to use those services over time and they don't they would like you to go sign up tomorrow for Squarespace, but they really want to do when they think about you have to buying a, a place to put your show, your your uh, your homemade candle company. You want to think, oh, I've heard of Squarespace. But if it's a book that's coming out this week and the marketing budget's going to run out in six weeks and probably it's not going to do much anyway and you can't click through to see if they bought the book, podcast advertising a lot of times is not the best to show up on a report in that way. I think it's still probably the best way to get your message out to certain readers. I think ours for sure. You get to hear 60 Mm -hmm. seconds or 90 seconds about a particular book. But the metric is not great because we report like, here's how many people heard that. But you know, you're a podcast listener out there, person listening to it. So am I. So is Rebecca. How often do you go click the link to an ad? Most of the time, it's not even there anymore, including us, because it was so, so approach zero that it wasn't worth doing. So understanding what the value proposition of podcast advertising for publishers on a title by title basis is a question to get figured out. And until we do, there's a certain ceiling on what it's worth us to invest in growing audience outside of what we already do. Podcast listeners like you all out there right now are, in a lot of ways, our most loyal, dedicated, interesting, valuable, and feedback-heavy audience. And so it's important to us even outside of the business. But in terms of where we're going to put marginal dollars of profit to reinvest in the company, hard to make a, a case for it right now, to be honest with you. Yes. Oh, yes. Anything, yeah, I, I sort of did the whole thing. I did the whole thing right there. Let's take one more break. And let's talk about the future. What is the future, Rebecca? What are we? What are this is this is more of an, a real question that I anticipated once it came out of my mouth because um, I don't know what we both maybe or diff- how we disagree yeah. on this. Would you like to start? Want me to start? I've got one I... loaded up, but I I can go first or let you have the floor first if you. Oh, think out loud about it a little yeah. bit. I'm in 500 episodes of doing this. I've gotten used to you asking me a question yes. that Shoot I didn't it from know the hip, was right into your mouth. Yeah. Um, I well, I feel clearer on what the future probably isn't oh, that's immediately a great, yeah, take that. than that's on a what way. it is. I don't think the future is additional sub verticals about things that aren't uh, books. Uh, I think we have right. learned our lesson there. Um, yeah. That going more specific and diversifying within books is what we are good at and where our audience is willing to go with us and building off of what you were saying about podcasts, starting to build a brand new audience in a brand new place about a different topic, like starting from zero is much, much harder now than it was 10 years ago when we were blessed by the gods of Facebook before the algorithm existed. Mm -hmm. And I think we've said it privately to our staff. I don't know if we've said it on this show, but like this company might not exist or would exist in a very different, would look very different now um, if Facebook had had an algorithm when we started (laughs) like wide distribution that we got because there was no algorithm yet was so crucial to early growth. Um, I think in the next couple years of immediate future, there's a lot more that we'll do a lot more experimentation with how to reach out, how to have direct contact with the folks who have contact with book riot in some way, whether it's more book subscriptions, different kinds of things from TBR, whether it's something um, connected through podcasts or more, you know, more informalized bonus content. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think there's a lot of space for additional growth with like news curation, email um, newsletters and curation of other things around the web I don't have guesses about like a ne- what the next big shift is going to be. Um, I think for a while we've been seeing folks experiment with different, certainly different platforms of video, different types of video content. I think we'll see Book Riot do some experimentation like with TikTok we're playing with right now. I don't mm-hmm. know if that will become a cornerstone of how we work, but I think we're going to poke around at it for a little bit. Um, I do feel like there's 10 more years of interesting stuff that can be done. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but this like these I don't know everything since like year two has been completely a surprise <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting yeah you know if you had sat us down in 2013 and been like what do you think this is going to look like in 2021 most of what it looks like right now is not what we would have guessed no. um and this is also just how i i don't know for our listeners this is also how i live my in my life like it's it's imp- i don't have a 10-year plan it's impossible to try to know what's going to happen in 10 years but this, these are my best feelings i guess about where we might be going what's your one thing my, my one thing is and i and i think the the realization and sharif and i have talked about this a little bit um, and I think I mentioned it with Danica too, who gave me some book talk, TikTok download stuff uh, when you're out last week. I think short form social video is here to stay. I don't know if that's always going to, you know, TikTok is the behemoth forever and ever and amen. But I think that format is the logical endpoint of this stage of social media, right? Mm-hmm. It's as close as you can get to being in the same room with someone, an influencer, a friend, a celebrity, a newscaster, a whatever. And it is, in a lot of ways, it's the maximal viable product uh, out of which Twitter at the beginning was the minimum viable product, right? 140 text characters only, all the way to full-featured, editable, with special effects in some cases, minute-long videos. And I think thinking in terms of format rather than platform has been a little bit liberatory for me in thinking about what the future of what kinds of books stuff we could do with Mm. casual, shortish form video Um, for... Right now, it seems to be that the people that make the most hay with these kinds of things are individuals, influencers, um, celebrities that can get a huge audience, not necessarily the deputy editor of a of a, of, of a digital magazine, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like people don't come for the New York Times TikTok. They come from someone, a personality in this particular video, and the algorithm there is even crazier uh, influential. So it's a little hard to see, but I think if you look past the platform and the particular distribution pattern of that platform in a given moment, I think short form video is is a sen- is like the sentence. It is it's going to be around in some form or another. It can get put on different places, and how you're going to distribute that and people and monetize it and make it into a business are all open questions. But as an experience that people like, um, it's human. It's close. And it's intimate. It's also not um, subject to, I don't know, different kinds of um, censorship necessarily, depending on the platform, uh, because you could theoretically text message, you know, group SMS. Like these, I'm just thinking past the platform. Like getting video from person to person doesn't necessarily need platforms eventually down the road. And I'm curious to see how that goes, but I'm not sure. And there's a lot, there's vibrant content being produced on Instagram still, YouTube still, TikTok for sure. And I think other things will probably come down the pike. I think the primacy, any moment when a platform seems like it's going to be the ruler of till the end of time, it's helpful to remember that people have thought that about other things. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it doesn't mean you couldn't get, um, you couldn't get uh, the Habsburgs to come rule for a long time. Boy, that's a deep cut. You were in Switzerland, so I've got the middle middle (laughs) Europe on the mind. Um, so it's it's certainly possible that we will have a singular dominant platform, but our experience has been that that's not the case. And it's at the moment where it feels the most dominant that maybe the uh, the decline will fall. Boy, I have been reading yep. Foundation. Um, <laughs> that's kind of what that that whole thing is about. But, the decline will fall. But but people listening to things distributed digitally, people reading things distributed digitally, and people watching things distributed digitally. All those are the three pillars upon which the future of all this stuff is going to rest. And people will be different winners at different times. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I'm going for now. I think, I do think in terms of what book I could do differently, it's interesting you talk about news, I think becoming more of a news gathering dissemination organization. Kelly and Danica have done a nice job of covering more news, not just breaking news, but also covering specific issues. Um, in terms of ongoing questions in the book world that continue to get coverage, LBGQ plus non-binary gender dynamics, I think is, mm-hmm. is that's where the front lines of this are, especially in terms of the world of books and reading intersecting with the public sphere. I think in, within the world of publishing, that discussion advanced faster than racial and gender stuff did um, at yes. the time. It followed hard upon, and I think the conversations I see people having, I've had with people with inside the industry, I've said this before. I think they think a lot like you and I do, frankly, about a lot of these issues. They have their own constraints and those concerns and their own battles to fight. 
but they're mounted up in a way already um, that seems way ahead of where we were talking about, say, race in the published world of books and reading eight years ago. Um, I guess the other one, you know, the one that strikes me too is, and we're going to have more and more rounds with it, I think, and it's not a book story right now, but we're seeing the book story. It, it does come around to the book world time and again. I think it's going to happen more often is this Chappelle Netflix thing oh, about yeah. how accountable a company platform is for the creators that use it and they sign for it. You know, we said in the Mike Penn situation and a whole bunch of other things like that being adjudicated by employees, especially. It's mm-hmm. not just the public. It's the employee. They have the most juice. One employee tweeting about you is like more powerful than 10,000 of people hashtagging you trying to death. Um, yeah. Maybe not 10,000. I don't know. But there's a multiplicative effect of a walkout um, for what was the was a Woody Allen, right? That was yeah, the walk think, out of the Hachette. Like that's a th- that's not going anywhere. That's going to intensify the influence that the rank and file have over the executive content decisions. What that company they work for is putting out into the world. That is a front line right now in the mm-hmm. world of books and reading for sure. Oh yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And that exi- that and right that it also exists outside of books and reading. Like the the protest is coming from inside the house, yes. and when it comes from inside the house, it is much more powerful and much more urgent, or and certainly mm-hmm. harder to ignore <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> than oh, those are just angry people on Twitter. And and I think that's contributed to why we've seen an acceleration in the publisher response to readers and and their employees wanting better representation of LGBTQ folks and non-binary folks in books is that we got like we did that round publishing did the like it took forever to Mm -hmm. really start moving forward in racial diversity and representation and folks who work for publishers like rank and file folks learned you can do this and you can make change and you can bring the protest from inside the house and survive it and not just survive it but be successful that's the crucial that's absolutely the crucial point not just be not just survive it but be successful in pushing it forward and so there's less fear about Mm -hmm. pushing for the next thing and there will be something else there will be some other layer of representation some other part of identity that we want to do a better job with and that's that's how this should go it should continue to expand and to push out and i would guess and hope that that next one would be even faster because you get better at doing this and publishers i think their fear is decreasing because they are seeing that their business hasn't gone away in fact it's gotten stronger Mm -hmm. it turns out it actually is better for business if you represent more customer or more Mm -hmm. more people in the kinds of things that you sell more people are willing to to buy those things Um, and i hope that they're doing it for the reasons of this is the right thing to do but you can see that they're recognizing it's good for business and that should decrease some of the friction as we continue to go forward. Yeah. I think the, that, I think that's a pretty good survey of where we are. Again, a lot of these issues are going to get brought up in various forms over time, but for now that's our show. Um, you can find our show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. Uh, uh, you can also email us podcast at bookriot.com. If you've got questions or comments uh, about anything we talked about here, any of the past episodes, um, yeah, go check out the merch, get the fall preview draft and pre uh, November 5th. Is that when we're recording the crossroads episode? Or is that what being released? Do you know off the top of your head? Oh, it'll be released on November 5th. We're recording on the 28th, the 28th. So if you are interested in seeing if there's a Franzenazans, is it real? Is it a, a chimera? Um, I'm curious to see. I haven't cracked it, but I'm, I'm going mm-hmm, into much either. of an open heart. Uh, as I can. What goes around, Franz ends around, it turns out, in the yes, 10 years of Book Riot at here. It's uh, sitting on my coffee table right now, and I keep having this moment of like, I'm a person with a Jonathan Franz and hardcover on their coffee table again. How did that happen? It's, it's right. It's true. And I guess the other book we've committed between ourselves to talk about at something like length, maybe not a whole episode, I don't know if we'll do a whole episode on the Franz in either or a segment, is uh, Louise Erdrich's The Sentence, which comes out yes. November 9th. And I'm sure we'll have things to say about Apollo Murders and Fuzz and Stanley Tucci. Mm-hmm. And maybe as we go, we can revisit those for a few minutes. I could have listened to that book forever. Just have it oh, on. I'm, just forever. I, I could have just had it playing forever. I regret that I didn't do audio um, for it. That it was in my, the galley was in my iPad. I was on a plane. It was like, you know what, Stanley Tucci, this sounds good right now. But I loved that CNN series. And I am sad I that, that I did not listen to him. Yeah. Fantastic. There's a there's a vignette about Meryl Streep eating a um, <laughs> piece of horse anatomy. <laughs> It does taste a bit of the barnyard. A bit of the barnyard. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. (laughs) 